God's word says this, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it, it be not known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. The Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam, as a man burns up dung until it is gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken. Rise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, and scatter them beyond the Euphrates, because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah, and as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died, and all Israel buried him and mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. So as uh, most of you know, last Sunday I got back, uh, drove to Florida for a vacation, and uh, it was a great time of uh, kind of recharging as a family. But there was one particular day where things weren't working out so well. Uh, so this particular day, we went to uh, this island in southwest Florida called Sanibel Island. Um, and there's a lot of traffic on the island, so we decided we are going to bike around a little bit. Uh, so we rented bicycles, and we traveled to this beach that was a lot farther than we thought it was. Uh, and so we're, we're traveling there, get to the beach, spend a little time there, and we were having a good time. Then we start the way back, and we decided we were going to go on the scenic route back. And it was a lot longer than we were expecting it to be. But worst of all, while we were maybe a quarter of the way back, it just starts downpouring. And so we're, we're pedaling away, trying to get there as fast as we can. You know, and for me, it's just kind of an inconvenience. It's no big deal. You know, but I'm carrying Paulie in the back. He's on this little cart, and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs because he doesn't want to get his feet wet. <laughs> and so we finally get back to this place that we had rented them. We get dry, did a few other things on the island, and uh, by that time, it's early afternoon, and we didn't eat lunch. We had kind of a late breakfast, so we are starving. And 
there's no one, nowhere we really saw to get a snack, and so we decided we were going to go to this mall, eat at the mall, which is about a mile, uh, an hour away. So we go to leave the island, and there's only one way on and one way off. And we see there, there's, there's an incredible amount of traffic there, and nobody's going anywhere. And so we're just sitting there, and, you know, every five minutes, you know, maybe we move like 50 feet. And there's no other way off the island. That's the only way you can go. So we're just sitting there, starving to death, hoping that the traffic moves. And it didn't move. And it didn't move. Finally, we got to a place where we could kind of do a shortcut. And after an extended amount of time, we were able to get out from that traffic. And we're on the causeway. We think we're free. And then we hit more traffic and more traffic and more traffic. Everywhere we turned, it seemed like there were an, an insane number of people. You know, and just we're just traveling through this traffic, starving, looking forward to eating uh, at the mall, spending some time at the mall. So, like I said, it was about an hour or maybe a little bit longer away from our, where we started. And so we get about 15 minutes away, and by this point, it's like 5.30 or something like that. And uh, Stephanie decides she's going to look up the hours to see how long we're going to have at the mall, uh, you know, depending on when we get there. And, you know, I thought a mall's closed at 8, 9, 10 o'clock, closed at 7 o'clock. And it's like 5.30, we're not even there yet, we haven't eaten, so by the time we would get there and eat, the mall would be closed. So then we decide, we got to go back to the hotel. So we've been fighting through all of this traffic for nothing. And so we turn around, and then it's like, all right, what do we eat? Where do we go to eat? Couldn't think of anything. Finally, we, we thought about a place near the hotel, which was about 45 minutes away. And so we decided to order takeout from that place. So we go to that restaurant, pull in, and it is packed. We go to pull into like the to-go spot. There's no to-go spots. They're all filled up. So then we're just kind of sitting in the middle of the parking lot. And I go to look at my confirmation and realize I didn't get any confirmation. So I call the restaurant and tell them, hey, I didn't get any confirmation. They're like, oh, well, which spot are you in? I'm like, I'm not in a spot. I'm just sitting out here. Can you please just bring us some food, please? And finally, they did. I'm sure you've had experiences like that where it just seems like everything you do, you face opposition, like nothing is going the right way. And I imagine the people during Jeroboam's day who were truly following the Lord, imagine they felt that too. In just two generations, you saw this dramatic shift in Israel, whereas, you know, just two kings prior with King David, King David was the greatest of Israel's kings. And it says that in the text that he followed the Lord with all of his hearts. He wasn't perfect. We know he made mistakes, but he followed the Lord. And not only was he just a king who led the people in battle, but he kind of led the people in the worship of God. And so he had this real heart for the Lord, and, and Israel kind of had that memory within her of that king who led the people in the Lord. Then his son Solomon, he, he was kind of a mixed, kind of a mixed bag in terms of his faithfulness to God. He kind of started out strong. He built the temple of the Lord, but then he kind of went astray at the end and followed after other gods. And then you get to Jeroboam, and at this point the, the kingdom of Israel and Judah are split. And you get to Jeroboam, and Jeroboam isn't concerned about following the Lord at all. All he's concerned about is kind of political uh, political expediency. All he cares about is 
maintaining power, maintaining authority. And so he does things that are very questionable, does things that are against the Old Testament law. He follows, leads the people in idolatry, following after other gods. And you can only imagine an Israelite who's trying to follow after the Lord, who knew what it was like to have a king whose heart was set on the Lord. And now Jeroboam is doing everything he can to try to discourage the worship of God and leading the people in idolatry. I, I don't think it's too much unlike the situation in our nation today. While the United States has never been a fully Christian nation, it was founded on Christian principles. And as early as, or as late as the 1950s, it was common for schools to open up with a word of prayer or scripture reading. You know, and we've gone in just couple generations from kind of acceptance and promotion of Christian ideals to discouragement and even condemnation and sometimes even persecution of following Christ. And so we're going to look at this passage today and consider the question, what does it look like to live in a world that's opposed to Christ? What does it look like to live in a world that's opposed to Christ? Because that's what's happening here in Jeroboam's day and I and I believe that's what's happening in our day as well. And when we think about that, and sometimes we think of that as being kind of unique. It's like, you know, we look, on, look back on kind of the glory days when, when, you know, when it wasn't like that. But really, throughout history, the majority of time, the world has been opposed to Christ. The world has been opposed to the things of Christ. And so our situation is not unique. It was happening in Jeroboam's day. It was happening in Jesus' day. And it happens today as well. And so with that, what does it look like to live in a world that's opposed to Christ? In a world that's opposed to Christ, justice is often delayed. In a world that's opposed to Christ, justice is often delayed. So we look at this passage. Jeroboam's son, uh, Abijah, is sick. And so he sends his wife, who's unnamed, to this prophet named Ahijah. I know that can be confusing, Abijah and Ahijah. But Abijah is the son, Ahijah is the prophet. And so Jeroboam sends his wife to uh, Ahijah the prophet to find out what's going to happen to his son Abijah who is sick. And so she goes there in disguise. She doesn't want them to know who she is. And, you know, Ahijah is truly a prophet of the Lord and the Lord reveals to, to him, you know, who it is and pronounces a word of judgment on Jeroboam. And it's a pretty harsh word of judgment that he pronounces on Jeroboam. His kingdom's going to be vanquished. His descendants are going to be destroyed and you think about that and you think about that pronouncement of judgment and you think about maybe someone who was following after God in Israel during this time and you know and seeing Jeroboam do all of these terrible things and and what if they heard that pronouncement of judgment that God was going to vanquish Jeroboam that God was going to bring justice I imagine they'd be encouraged because Jeroboam had been leading the people astray but look at the timing of when this is going to happen. See, Ahijah pronounces the word of judgment, but the full judgment isn't going to come for 200 years. It's going to be 200 years before his kingdom is destroyed. The nation goes into exile. This time it would have seemed like there were no consequences. It would have seemed like Jeroboam was getting away with his idolatry. Yes, he was pronounced a word of judgment, but it wasn't going to come. For hundreds of years that his family would be cast aside. I think sometimes some of us experience the same thing. 
Some of us have experienced some really bad things that have happened to us. Maybe people have done things to us, maybe don't even feel any remorse. Sometimes it feels like there's no consequences, there's no justice. And it might not be super encouraging to hear, but justice is coming, but it's not coming yet. Sometimes we don't see justice in this world. Sometimes we have to wait for the world to come. And God has made us with this longing for justice. When we see things that are wrong, we want rights, uh, things to be made right. We want wrongs to be made right. Uh, in the book of Revelation, John has a vision of those who have been martyred for their faith. And they cry out and say this, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're crying out for justice, and it's natural and even appropriate to be angry at injustice. And that's why God is a God of justice, and one day he will judge the living and the dead. We also have to be patient. We have to be patient because not only is God a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. And we have to think about, why does God delay? Well, there's probably a number of reasons why he could delay, but one of the reasons that he delays in the Scripture is he delays because he's looking for repentance. He'd rather have repentance than judgment. The Scriptures tell us he doesn't take any delight in the death of the wicked. He'd rather have us repent than for us to be judged. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Sometimes God's justice is delayed because he's waiting for people to repent. There's a Hasidic story that tells of a great celebration in heaven when uh, the Israelites are delivered from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. The Egyptian armies are drowned, the angels are cheering and dancing, the whole of heaven is in an uproar, God isn't there. Michael, the archangel, wondered, why was God not there? Another angel answered and said this, God is not here because he's off by himself weeping. You see, many thousands were drowned today. God's a God of justice, but he's also a God of love. And as believers, we're kind of stuck in this, uh, this tension here. You know, we long for justice. We want wrongs to be made right. But we're also agents of reconciliation. We also want people to be changed. We want people to be saved. And I think some Christians have fallen into kind of one of two extremes. You know, some of them are all kind of on the, the judgment bandwagon. It's like, you know, you see injustices that happen in this world or maybe in our personal lives, and we're like, all right, God is going to judge them one day. They're going to pay for what they did wrong. You know, and that's kind of their mindset. It's this judgment mindset. And then on the other hand, you have other people that kind of lean towards just the mercy. And it's like, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, if people are generally good, all the religions lead to God, it just doesn't, it doesn't really matter, everyone's going to be saved in the end. And I really think you need both. The scriptures show us a God of justice and a God of mercy. As believers, we long for justice, but we're agents of mercy. We pray that every man, woman, and child would come to repentance, would come to experience the love of Christ. The world is opposed to Christ. Justice is often delayed. And as believers in Christ, we need to recognize two things. Number one, we need to recognize justice is coming. 
God is going to make all wrongs right. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about uh, the injustices, that the scales are not going to be tipped in the, in the right direction. God is a ju- God of justice, and one day we will answer for what we do. We need to also remember why God delays. He often delays for repentance. He delays so that people would have a chance to turn to him before it's too late. So as believers, we be, we, we're to be patient. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, patience then, believer. Eternity will right the wrongs of time. So in a world that's opposed to Christ, justice is often delayed. We don't often see the justice that maybe we long for. Injustice seems like it reigns. But secondly, in a world opposed to Christ, grace is often disguised. Grace is often disguised. In the passage, there's something I find quite remarkable. There's only one character in this story who's given kind of the affirmation of God. And that's Jeroboam's son, Abijah. But what's his lot? What's going to happen to him? He's going to die. He's not going to recover from the illness. Look again at what it says in verses 12 to 13. It says, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, how is that grace? How is the, he's given the affirmation of God that there's something pleasing to God in him, and yet he's not going to recover, he's going to die. Well, I think we see a clue in verse 11. It says, anyone belonging to the house of Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. So part of the judgment that Jeroboam and his family are going to receive is that uh, what's called post-mortem desecration. In other words, after they die, their bodies are going to be destroyed. Now, in this, you know, in our day and age, we don't think of that as being a huge deal. Uh, you know, we might think of it as being kind of gross, but, you know, we think, well, we're gone. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens to our body. We're not here anymore. It's not that big of a deal. But in the ancient world, it was a huge deal. In the ancient world, if your body was destroyed, it was kind of like you were destroyed. Uh, that's why it was such a big thing to be hung on a cross, be hung, to be hung on a tree. It was kind of like a curse of God. That not only do you die, but you're kind of cursed after death. And so it was a big deal in the ancient world, and that's Jeroboam's fate, because he had led the people in idolatry. He's not concerned with following the Lord at all. So that's his fate. That's the fate of his family, except for Abijah. It says in the text that Abijah, when he dies, all of Israel is going to mourn. All of Israel is going to honor him, and he's going to go to the grave in peace. And so we see that grace of God in this situation. We also don't know exactly why God chose to take him at this point. But I have some ideas. You know, you have Jeroboam as your father who's completely evil, you know, and, and this young boy, we don't know how old he was, but he uh, was pleasing to the Lord. And perhaps God wanted to spare him uh, the, the kind of the pain of seeing his father's downfall. You know, maybe he wanted to spare him from becoming king and, and potentially facing all these temptations to be like his father. We don't know for sure, but we do know that there was grace in this situation. 
that God showed Abijah grace, even though it looked like tragedy. And God often does that. God often shows us grace, but in a world opposed to Christ, it's often disguised as an inconvenience or even as a tragedy. Uh, in 1979, May 25th, there was a man by the name of Dennis Waitley, and he was desperately trying to catch a flight from Chicago to Los Angeles. And he's rushing as fast as he can to get to the gate, and just as he gets to the gate, the door shuts. And he begs them to open the door, but they refuse. And he is livid. He goes right over to the ticket counter, and he's standing in line. He's ready to file a complaint, get his money back for the ticket. And as he's standing there in line, he hears a message over the intercom. The AA flight 191 to Los Angeles had crashed upon takeoff. The engine on the left wing had separated from the airplane right after takeoff, causing the airplane to be unbalanced, to roll, and all 271 people on board died. It was the deadliest aviation accident in United States history course that changed him had he been on time had he been on that plane it would have been the last flight he ever took of course he never registered his complaint nor he did he ask for a refund for his ticket instead he took his ticket and put it in a visible place in his office and whenever he was facing a hard time he looked at that ticket and, and was reminded that every day is a gift sometimes grace is disguised as inconvenience suffering tragedy. We don't know always why God allows certain things to happen. Some of us over the last few years, we've experienced incredible tragedy. Maybe we've lost loved ones. Maybe we've lost a job. Maybe we've lost relationships. Maybe we've experienced a lot of physical pain. Maybe some of us have experienced emotional pain, anxiety, depression. Sometimes we don't know why God allows these things to happen. But we know that through all of those, God shows us grace. And we know that we can count on that, that we can bank on that, because God declares it in Romans 8, 28. Paul says, and we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Even in these circumstances, even in the valleys, God is showing us grace, even if it doesn't look like it. God loves us. He's our perfect heavenly father. And we know he wouldn't allow anything in our lives if it's going to ultimately harm us. A world opposed to Christ, God's grace is often disguised in inconvenience or suffering. Helen Keller once wrote this. When one door of happiness closes, another opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one which has been opened for us. God has a purpose for us as, as believers. And even in the difficult parts of life, those, those moments are infused with God's grace. So what does it look like to live in a world opposed to Christ? Often justice is delayed, grace is disguised, and finally, people are silent. In a world opposed to Christ, often people are silent. Again, remember what's happening here. Jeroboam's son, Abijah, is sick. His wife, presumably, uh, this, Abijah's mother, goes to... Ahijah to find out what's going to happen to the boy. And he gets, she gets the pronouncement that he's going to die. As soon as she enters into the city, he's going to die. 
Now, her response is a little bit curious. If it were me, if I would have heard something like that, that God had spoken in that way, there's a few different ways I might respond than she did. First of all, I'd cry out to God. I'd cry out to God and say, God, why did you allow this to happen? Or why, why are you allowing this to happen? Can you show mercy to my son? We don't have any record of that. Second, she always didn't have to go back home. If she didn't go back home, maybe her son wouldn't have died. But we don't have any record of her doing anything. It seems like her response is just resignation. That it just is what it is. Her son is going to die. That's the end of the story. And I, I believe that one of the greatest weapons that the enemy uses is the weapon of resignation. And what I mean by that is I believe the enemy wants to believe that your situation, your relationship, your world, they're not going to change. That they just, they are what they are, and you, you just can't change them. It's like, you know, you're struggling with this sin. Well, you just got to deal with it. You're never going to be able to conquer this sin. Just the way you are, you're too deep in it. You just got to resign yourself to that. Wants us to be resigned to the state of our friends and loved ones. It's like, you know your friend, he or she, they're not, they're not Christians. They don't know the Lord. Well, they're never going to change. They're just good, the way that they are. You just got to resign yourself to that. You know, your marriage, your spouse is the way that he or she is. They're not going to change. Your relationship is never going to be happy and joyful. It's not going to change. I believe that Satan wants us to keep us there. We know something different. We know that Jesus changes everything. We can't just resign ourselves to the state of the world. We're not fatalists. It just believes what happens, happens. When we see injustice, when we see things happening in this world that are not of God, we cry out to him. We know that he hears us. Sometimes he answers us in the affirmative. Sometimes he says yes. Now, we don't know what might have happened. What if this woman, Jeroboam's wife, would have cried out to God? Maybe God would have said, sure, I'm going to heal your son. We don't know that for sure. But perhaps it would have been the case. And sometimes when we cry out to God, God will change our circumstances in miraculous, dramatic ways. Sometimes he does say no. Sometimes he does say no. And, and when he does say no, we did, it's not that we just kind of resign ourselves to that fate. We just accept that God is in control. And there's a difference between resignation and acceptance. Elizabeth Elliot put it this way. Resignation is surrender to fate. Acceptance is surrender to God. Another writer says this, resignation lies down quietly in an empty universe. Acceptance rises up to meet the God who fills that universe with purpose and destiny. Resignation says, I can't, and God says, I can. Resignation says, it's all over for me. Acceptance asks, now that I'm here, Lord, what's next? Resignation asks, what a waste. Acceptance says, in what uh, redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? In the face of tragedy, in the face of a world that's opposed to Christ, God's people are not to be silent. God's people are to cry out to him with all of our hearts. 
Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, as my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or to seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. May we not be silent in the face of a world opposed to Christ. John Piper writes this, darkness comes. In the middle of it, the future looks blank. The temptation to quit is huge. Don't. You're in good company. You will argue with yourself that there is no way forward, but with God, nothing is impossible. He has more ropes and ladders and tunnels out of pits than you can conceive. Wait, pray without ceasing hope. Let's not just resign ourselves to the things that are the way that they are. Let's cry out to God. And oftentimes he will answer, and if not, we accept that he has a plan, that he has a purpose in what's happening. So those are three things. In a world that's opposed to Christ, justice is often delayed, grace is often disguised, people are often silent. And really what happens is the first two often cause the last one. Justice is delayed. It seems like evildoers kind of get the upper hand sometimes. It seems like people get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. Grace is often disguised. Sometimes we experience suffering. We experience things that we don't like. We don't understand why God does the things that he does. And then often what happens is that we become silent. We stop praying. Stop trying to fight against injustice. We just kind of resign ourselves to the way that things are. You think about Jeroboam's wife. It's like, why didn't she cry out to God? Why didn't she change her actions when she heard this word of the Lord? Well, there's a couple options. Number one, she could have just not believed that it was going to happen. But given the fact that she had gone to the prophet and uh, went back home, and it, we don't have any evidence that that's the case. Second, perhaps she believed that God couldn't or God wouldn't heal her son. That God didn't have the power to heal her son or that God didn't have the attitude to, to, to heal her son. And that's often what causes us to become silent. We see injustice. We see things in our life we don't understand. And it's like either God can't change my situation or God won't change my situation. And so we just stop trying. We don't pray. We don't seek to fight against injustice. Teresa of Avila puts it this way. In time when, times when you're sad and troubled, do not give up the good works of prayer and penance which you have been in the habit of doing. For the devil will try to persuade you to abandon them and unsettle you. Rather, practice them more than before, and you will see how quickly the Lord will come to your aid. I think the key in all of this, in closing, key is faith. Final point I'd like to leave with you this. Faith allows us to cry out and work for justice in a world where justice is delayed and grace is disguised. Faith is that key. It allows us to cry out for justice, to work for justice, even when we face opposition. Even when it seems like evildoers get the upper hand, even when God does things in our lives doesn't seem to make sense to us, faith allows us to keep praying, keep working, keep fighting for the things of God. May we do that. May we walk forward in faith, crying out to him, 
fighting against injustice in every way we can. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the good and perfect Heavenly Father. We thank you that you hear our cries. We thank you that you're there for us in good times and in bad. We thank you for the promise of your word. Nothing can separate us from your love. That you work all things together for the good of those who love you. Lord, when we're experiencing a life that often seems unfair, where it seems like justice is delayed, where grace is disguised, help us to walk forward in faith, seeking your heart, seeking to fight against injustice, crying out to you with all of our requests, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you care for us, and knowing that through it all, you have a good and perfect plan. In Christ's name I pray, amen.